What a wonderful God. Evidence in those beautiful babies, huh? Just love seeing uh, both Dylan and Elia coming up here this morning. It's good to be with you here this morning. And while we're covering that spectrum of the beginning of life, I just wanted to take one second and acknowledge a birthday. Ava Ware is, today is her 94th birthday. She's sitting in the back there, and so we wanted to wish a happy birthday to Ava. She served in the military in World War II. I found that very interesting. Just a unique story there. And so celebrating the beginning of life and those are a little bit further on in years. And so grateful for that here this morning. Well, this morning I wanted to uh, take just a moment before we dive into the text to just explain a little bit of some of the methodology of why we do some of the things we do here at ABF. I'll explain a few things. One thing you'll probably notice if you've been around, if you're around for a while, is that I don't typically uh, preach topical sermons. In other words, I don't just pick an idea that I think you should hear about and then talk about it. I just basically work through sections of Scripture. Even if I do pick a topic, it's usually based in one section of Scripture. The reason for that is because I don't believe you need to hear my opinion on much of anything. Anybody, any amens on that? Amen. <laughs> there, there we go. Uh, because really, uh, it's, it's kind of a pointless thing if we're just sharing man's opinion on things. What's more importantly is that God wrote a book to us, and that's why we elevate that here at this church. We specifically spend time breaking down passages each week. Every single week, I spend a, a lot of hours in breaking down a passage and making sure that seeing myself as a tour guide, that we walk through a text, see how it relates to our life. And I really seek the Lord on that. Typically, there's at least one or two things that I'm not allowed to not say, if that makes any sense. But usually God's directing specific things that he wants to point out in the passage. You'll also notice one of the things that we do is we don't put the primary text that I'm preaching on on the screen. Anybody ever been annoyed by that before where you're like, man, he makes me look it up every week. Oh, it's so hard. And, and, and so, but the truth is the reason we do that is because my hope in prayer and my goal of equipping saints for ministry is that you learn to fall in love with this book, that you learn to open it up yourselves, to, to, to go through the pages of Scripture and to learn and gleam. And my, my ultimate hope is that you walk away and say, well, I could have done that. You know, like that, that's what I consider success. If you come to that conclusion of just like, I could have sat down with God's word. I could have brought that out from his word. And so that's our hope and the rationale of why we do the things we do. And so that when we get to some of the, the tough things in scripture, it's not my words. It's not my opinions. It's what God's word has to say on the topic. And the wonderful thing is, is God's word is so relevant to all of the things going on in our lives and in our culture, as we're going to see this morning. But I wanted to give that disclaimer before we dive into this difficult text this morning. Let me pray before we do that. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity to be together and just already the, the beauty of uh, your creation in these children and in the, the worshiping of you this morning. Just it, it feels right when we're doing things that were designed to do, to celebrate you, to acknowledge you, to honor you, to thank you. So we already praise you here this morning for that opportunity. Now we ask that you guide and direct us through your word, which speaks directly to us, that cuts right to the marrow, right through the bone to us. Pray that you'd be great and I'd be small. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. 
Well, one thing you may have noticed that you say about someone that's about to make a poor decision, maybe you've heard yourself say this or someone else say this about someone about to make a a, a poor decision, that's not going to end well. That's not going to end well. You can a lot of times forecast what's going to be the result of that decision. And really, I was thinking about that as it relates to my own son, Chase. You see a picture of him when he was around two years old. He was just kind of figuring out the, the walking thing and kind of stumbling around all over the place. And one time we were at some friend's house for, uh, for dinner and we're watching him come into the room and he's got right on top of his head, he's got a paper bag. Now I make sure I specify it wasn't plastic, it wasn't dangerous. And, uh, but he has this paper bag and he's walking across the room and we can see directly how this is going to end. He's headed straight for... A wall. It was a real crossroad in our, in our uh, parenting where my wife and I had that decision to either be the good parents who stop him or we're also a little bit interested to see how it was going to play out. Okay, there's just a confession, a little bit of the dark side of your pastor coming out where we just are wondering how this is going to end. And so we made the poor choice to just step away and let what's going to happen happen. And so guess what happened? Chase ran directly into that wall, but thankfully, as a small kid and with a big cushioned diaper, he landed safely on his bum. But here's the thing. As I was thinking about the way God interacts with us as his children, we're going to see in our text this morning that part of what he does as an act of his mercy and his love, he steps away and releases us to that even though he knows It's not going to end well, even though he knows it's not going to end well. With that backdrop, if you'll turn with me to Romans 1, 18, it's so much easier to make sense out of what I'm saying if you're looking at the same text with me. There's a Bible in the chair in front of you, or you can share with the stranger sitting next to you. Verse 18 says this of Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven... Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or go, uh, honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We'll stop there to explain a bit of what's happening. The first thing you notice, it always causes, or it should cause, our ears to perk up, is whenever the word God's words, God's wrath are mentioned in Scripture, you, you want to tune in, right? You, you want to make sure first that you're not uh, aligning yourself with anything that would cause wrath. Wrath of God is typically, when you think of that, you typically think of what? You typically think of Sodom and Gomorrah and fire raining down from heaven. You think of the the plagues in Egypt or some of the end time events. Those usually are what's associated with God's wrath. But we're going to see in our text 
this morning that God's wrath doesn't always look like that. Sometimes it's a little more passive. But before we explain that, notice that it also says that his, God, his wrath will be revealed. This could also be stated based on the original text that his wrath is constantly revealed. Constant. There's an idea of something being continual or constant in this context of his wrath. So you have to ask the question, what causes continual wrath from God? You see in the text there, it points to that. His wrath is, because, his wrath is because we suppress, man suppresses the truth. Suppresses the truth. What does suppress mean? The idea is this, that we oppose God's truth. A lot of times people will hear that and be like, well, I don't really think I oppose God's truth. But what, is he, what does he point to as how we oppose his truth? It's evident by our unrighteousness. In, in other words, the, the way that we disregard his plan and his design for how we do life is evidence of us suppressing or opposing the truth. Does that make sense? So that's the picture that he's painting there. And it's interesting that he says, listen, you, I've given you every bit of evidence all around you. Creation screams of my existence, God speaking. Creation screams of my existence, but yet you deny it, yet you suppress the truth. What does he conclude? He says, you're without excuse. You're without excuse. Man is without excuse. In fact, the psalmist proclaims, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And interesting in this text, that it says a couple of key words. It says, although they knew God. In other words, that points to the fact that everybody at their core, at the, at the core of who they are, knows that there is a God. Everyone, if they're really honest with themselves, you can't exist on this planet and look at creation and not acknowledge that there's a God. So the question is, why doesn't man acknowledge him? Why doesn't man thank him? Like, what's our deal? Why won't we even admit that he exists? How insane is that? Jesus actually points to that because the truth is, if we acknowledge that there's a God, then we also have to acknowledge that there might be some things that we're accountable to. And Jesus points out when he's asked about this in John 3, 19, that, man, that men love darkness rather than light because his deeds were what? Evil. He doesn't want to acknowledge it. We don't want to acknowledge it because if we do, that means that there's some things that need to look a little different in the way we do life, right? So acknowledging that, and so because of that, it points to the text, uh, what happened since they didn't honor him or give thanks, verse 21, but they became futile in their thinking. Futile in their thinking. In other words, it gets pretty messy and when man is in the role of playing God, when he has limited information, first off, based simply on his experiences and his conclusions on things, that's a dangerous position to be. What does that put us in? It's back to the story of Chase. This is our existence with our feudal thinking, trying to go on and walk. I'm not going to get too close to the edge there because I'll fall. But that's really the picture that he's painting. And it's kind of interesting because we as man like to think, we like to think that we think rightly. We like to think 
that we think rightly, right? Even with all of our libraries and universities of higher learning, it's interesting to say that God's verdict is futile thinking. What is futile thinking? I like this definition. Human speculation that leads to false conclusions. Human speculation. Okay, based on my experience and my time and what I've figured out, I've come to this conclusion. That's futile thinking. You don't see the whole picture. You don't get it all. You didn't create the whole deal. So who are you to make conclusions about how it works or operates? When thinking is distorted, our heart naturally becomes, in the text, dark and foolish. It points to what that foolishness looks like. It's interesting that he uses the word that they exchanged the immortal God for their own silly gods. And he gives examples of them, images resembling man, birds, animals, and creeping things. He points to this idea of an exchange. If you think about it, that's the worst exchange of all time. The absolute worst exchange. We've all, has anybody here made some, some dumb exchanges? Has anyone exchanged some credit card numbers for some really silly things? Can I say one word, eBay? Anybody have some exchanges that you, that you regret? I, I remember, I think I, I joked about this in one sermon, one time watching television and this, this commercial came on for the ab belt. Are you serious? I can have a six pack while I'm just watching television? Like, this is fantastic. Where's my credit card? So I made the exchange. My wife still teases me about this. About a, w- a week later, it arrives in the mail, and I get all comfortable, get my ab belt on, get the remote in the hand. I'm like, man, this is going to be awesome. And, and, and I end up with a burnt stomach and, and, and regretting that exchange, that purchase. It was one of the dumber ones. Come on, you guys have made some stupid purchases. Don't. Don't leave me up here. Please tell me somebody else has bought something off of an info commercial. But here's the thing. Everybody's like, nope. (laughs) Okay, so I'm the one that's made the poor exchange. But here, the word exchange, you get the idea, and that's maybe a silly example as we're talking about a massive matter. We've exchanged the immortal creator God, exchanged the worship of him for the worship of of man-made stuff. How crazy. What insanity. What futile thinking that is. Rebellion quickly corrupts our thinking and misdirects our worship. And the funny thing is, we keep trying to rationalize that stupid exchange by not acknowledging that there's a God. We keep trying to rationalize that stupid exchange by saying, well, because there is no God. There is no God that we have to answer to. Well, we see the outcomes here in verse 24 of that. What happens? It says, therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged what? The truth about God for a lie and did what? Worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Therefore is the key word there. Because of, in other words, because you made that exchange. Don't you ever wonder if God's in heaven being like, was it worth it? Was it worth that trade? All the things I'd given to you, the Garden of Eden, was that not good enough for you? 
A relationship with me, walking with me in the garden, was that not good enough? Was it worth the exchange? Well, because of the choice that we made, because we denied the truth, we what? Experience God's wrath. Therefore, but here's the interesting thing. What does that wrath look like? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. God gave them up. Is this, is this fire from heaven? Is this, is this plagues? What is this wrath that we're seeing here in this text? It's none of those things. It's the simple release to say, okay, if you want to go that direction, good luck with that. I wish you the best. There's the release. That's what God's wrath looks like in this context. Isn't that interesting? A passive view of God's wrath that he says, I'm just going to turn you over to yourself. It's interesting to think that the worst thing God could do to us is to leave us to ourselves. Interesting? The worst thing he could do to us is just leave us to our own selves. It's a pretty scary place to be, a progression of, of letting go, of turning things over to us letting us outside of his protective boundaries. I, Adrian and I came in, or it might have been just me, came into the kitchen the other, other day and found little Sienna, our youngest, seven years old, and she's there with a big butcher knife, a, a big chopping block thing, and, and she's trying to help make dinner, you know, and just cutting through things with her little fingers right there. And like, uh, so I stepped back and watched it happen. No, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> I, I intervened, I, <laughs> there's some redeeming grace there, I intervened and said, no, you can't play with that, it's going to end really poorly with like fingers on a chopping block, like no, you can't do that, it's dangerous, that was kind of graphic, sorry, but you get the idea, that this picture of God saying, all right, the worst wrath that I could impose on you is for me to say, I'm turning you over to yourself. In fact, it's a, a pattern that we see throughout Scripture. In Acts 14, 16, Paul talks about this again. He says, In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. He allowed them to walk. Go ahead. Go your own way. Wish you the best with that. Proverbs 1, 31 describes the consequences of rejecting God. It says, Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have the fill of their own devices. It's a powerful verse there, isn't it? You're, go ahead and eat it. Go ahead and have your way. Go, go that direction and see where that land, lands you. Guess what? It's not going to end well. It's not going to end well. What's it say in the text? What's the first thing that we head to? The first place that we head is lust. Lust is the very first place we go when we're left. Lust, by definition, is carnal desires for the forbidden. Carnal desires for the forbidden. It's just like a, a child when the parent leaves, the first thing they want to go is go do all the stuff that they're completely forbidden to do. Well, as children as of the Creator, that's really the same thing we do. Just head straight to the things that are forbidden. We had a great high school night two weeks ago, uh, Josh coordinated where we had a, a panel of pastors and leaders that we had, and we broke up the, the guys and the girls in different rooms and had the guys write out questions that they might have for some of the pastors and things that we could dialogue about. And it was interesting to hear, first off, what some of the questions were, but then the dialogue on, on some of the answers there. And it was so cool to see these guys just like hungry and like sticking around to the, the late evening to hear some of the responses. But Chad was in the, in the mix, and, and Chad, if you haven't 
picked this up from hearing him lead worship, is full of insights. Chad is definitely full of, of insights. I thought one of them that he shared was interesting and it relates to this topic. He ex- explaining to these high school guys, he said, expressions of freedom now imprison us later. Expressions of freedom now. For that, for that high school student that has this feeling like, yeah, I get to partake, I get to smoke some weed and drink some beer. Uh, it's freedom, man, and have sex with a girl. Like, that's freedom. But let, think about that for a second. Expressions of our freedom now imprison us later. Talk to the guy that's in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Are, are you experiencing freedom with this alcohol addiction that you've formulated? This guy in drug rehab, how's that going for you? How's that, that freedom? How about sitting across the table of the guy that wrecked his marriage because he's cheated on his wife? How's that, how's that freedom going for you now? See, the truth is, when we go outside of the boundaries, when we play outside of the lines, man, there's some consequences. It, it, it breaks it down. It gets pretty dark pretty quick. We see that here in the text. It leads them to impurity. Like this quote, sin would have fewer takers if its consequences were immediate. Sometimes it's delayed, leading us to impurity. Impurity, by definition in the context here, is decaying matter, often used, the same word used for contents of a grave. Kind of like, all right, that's where your, that's where your lusts are going to take you. It says dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This is referring to sexual sin. I know in our culture, in our day, there's some debate over what sexual sin is. What, what actually qualifies as that? What is, what, is, what is sin as it relates to that? And the interesting thing and the important thing to understand is this. Sexual sin is anything outside of God's design explained in Genesis 2. Anything outside of God's design, his initial design that he put in place. You can read about it on your own. He set it up for one man to be with one woman for a lifetime, to leave his parents, to to cleave with them, and to start a family. Sex is for procreation and enjoyment, enjoyment within the context of marriage with one man, with one woman. It's a beautiful picture. That's his, that's his design. So if you're ever wondering what is sexual perversion, anything outside of that plan and that design is broken. Here we see in the text. Basically, man has exchanged God's pattern with our preferences. Paul's writing from the, the city of Corinth, which was known for being really sexually perverse. And he's writing to the city of Rome, which is known for being even more sexually perverse. And so sometimes you read texts like this and you're just like, man, that was a really broken, fallen empire. But really, this isn't just the story of a time and place. This is the story of mankind. This isn't about an empire. This isn't about the United States and our situation. It's about the fallen state of man and where man heads independent of God's leadership and rule in his life. Does that make sense? So this is the picture that he's painting there. Sexually indulgent culture, today very similar. I thought it was interesting. The founder of a pornographic empire, a very well-known man, says this, sex is a biological function like eating and drinking, so let's forget all the prudery about it and do whatever we feel like doing. Think about that for a moment. How's that end? Where does that take us? 
It doesn't end well. Think even in our culture where that's taken us. Broken families, slavery, prostitution, disease, abortion, people left numb and cold and broken. That's where it takes us. When we go outside of the bounds of what God has established. But if we're honest, we've all wandered in th- either in thought or deed in this area. That's not somebody that's like, yeah, those people really are, are messed up in the, the direction they've gone. No, we, we've all wandered in this. Every single one of us, all guilty. That was interesting. One author said, statistically speaking, heterosexual males represent the largest percentage of sexual perversion. If we think that we're free or, 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 or off the hook because there's other forms of, uh, of perversion that we elevate as greater, it's just not the truth. He's saying that wherever our lusts take, take us is outside of God's design. You see in the context here, verse 26, that this spiral continues. It says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Again, we see the same thing. For this reason, God gave them up. What's the reason? Because they exchanged truth with a lie because they decided to go the man decided to go his own ways and you see where that ends up taking them you see where it ends up taking it says the when when God's abandoned them when God's released us to our own ways it it takes us to dishonorable passions you read that text sometimes people criticize scripture being like it's so vague it uses words that are like hard to understand and yeah what's what actually qualifies as a dishonorable passion well Not in this context. It explains very specifically what a dishonorable passion is. What he he explains it, he explains that it's when someone exchanges natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. That's the explanation. This is more than just breaking a law, but the very structure of created order, the way God put things in place. Like one author says, when man forsakes the author of nature, he inevitably forsakes the order of nature. When we, when we, when we say, you know what, no thanks God, then, then when you wonder how we got there, it's because we've gone our own way. We've decided that his way isn't relevant. God sees the practice of same-sex relations as re- the result of God allowing man to follow his own lusts wherever they lead. In most cultures, women more reluctant to be involved in homosexual acts, possibly why this shocking reality is mentioned first in this verse, but either way it points to the men as well, gave up natural relations. Remember again what is natural. Natural is defined in Genesis 2. This isn't just a one-time section in Scripture where this is discussed. I put even in your notes a, a plethora of verses that point to this brokenness and got from God's design, where we've wandered, where we've gone our own directions. Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, 22, 20, 13, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, Jude 7. It's not something that we have to wonder where God stands on this topic. However, 
when left to our own futile thinking, remember that? We might conclude that two men together make sense. That you're like, wait a second, that, that, that doesn't make sense. Like we're, we'd be, if we all headed that direction, we'd be one generation from extinction. It's broken, it's outside of God's plan and God's design. But here's the encouraging thing, is that it doesn't have to be that way. Our culture has a prevailing thinking on this, that one, what do you hear so often, is that you're born this way. Two, that you hear so often, is that you can't change. You're born this way and you can't change. It doesn't, doesn't leave much hope. We'll get to the hope in a moment, but think about those two things that were pointed to, this idea that we're born this way. There's tons of research out there pointing to all the different factors that, that, that why somebody is bent towards a, a specific direction. And to me, I, when I see some of the, the evidences, I'm like, that doesn't seem so inclusive. But look at this. What if we even say that the evidence does point to the fact that someone is born that way. What if we even come to that conclusion? Okay, so we say, we, we throw in the towel and we say, okay, the evidence points that somebody is born that way. But what, what do you do with that? What do you do with that, that, that reality? How, what happens when we've, we start equating desires we have with rights that we have? What happens? What a dangerous road that, that takes us in. The truth is everybody is born into sin. Scripture teaches us that. It's, it's crystal clear. But there's different things that you might struggle with that I don't struggle with. There's different things that I might struggle with that you don't struggle with. There's different tugs that each one of us has, and that's part of the deal. It's part of living in a broken world for, with broken people and futile thinking. It's a broken deal. Truth is, we're all born with varying tendencies and temptations towards certain sins. However, just because we have a pull, that pull doesn't mean we have to submit to this. Doesn't mean we have to submit to this. We might not choose our temptations, but we always choose our response to those temptations, right? That's what we're responsible for. Somehow, though, we've equated the, our desires with our, our rights, and that can take us down some really broken paths. Think of if we as a culture keep going the direction of saying, well, that's the way I was born. I mean, you could take that any direction. A man could say, well, I, I'm born with a bent towards infidelity. I'm really attracted to women that aren't my wife. Like, well, those, I was born that way. What? How are you going to tell me that I, I can't go that direction? Like, that, that's, that's broken, it's broken. It'll end poorly. I was reading an article this week, and it really breaks my heart. There's a new organization. Actually, it's been growing for the last 20 years called NAMBLA, N-A-M-B-L-A, North American Man-Boy Love Association, with the goal of abolishing age of consent laws. Like, what in the world? I'm born that way. What a dangerous path. I'm not equating the two. I'm just pointing to the fact that where that path and that thinking can take us to some really dark places really fast. And that's what he's pointing to here. When God releases and lets man go whatever direction he's going to go, it doesn't end well. It ends poorly. You see about it, the, the truth is, this morning, though, you can point to so many people that have, have, have made the choice to say, you know what, I, I'm not going to be defined by that. I'm not going to be defined by my area of struggle. When Jesus was asked, what does it take to, to follow me? What did he say? He 
said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We could share up here story after story after story of men or women that were tugged a certain direction because they made the choice to resist, to, to, deny, to deny that urge or that passion, that God blesses that. It's a trust exercise. Will God all of a sudden, who's been faithful in every other arena of life, not be faithful in that? But it's a difficult culture to to exist with that, as we all know present day. We have started to allow our sins to define ourselves. It breaks my heart when you even just hear in our culture when someone says, I am a homosexual. Not, I struggle with this, this tug or this pull. That's a dangerous place because as soon as you adopt that title, it's really hard to pull out of that. When you've accepted that, when you've embraced that as your identity... My wife and I have good friends that just moved into uh, Newport Beach down in that area and their daughter's just starting junior high, junior high little girl, sweet little girl. She's starting school and she's ex- their parents were explaining on her second day of school that she was asked already by some peers to say, so which are you? Do you, do you like boys? Do you like girls? Well, which, which one are you? Already at that age, having people cross the line to determine their identity based on that. It's a broken culture when we start embracing that. But here's the important thing for us as the church and with the word of God guiding us, that we have to avoid selective moral outrage. We have to avoid selective moral outrage. We can't just pick one area of brokenness and, and, and chase after that when our hands themselves are dirty. Here's kind of an interesting story this morning. I'm wearing a new pair of pants. Aren't they nice? They're dark gray, kind of uneventful. All morning, I noticed that my hands were all black. I'm like, what in the, what, what in the world? Like, what, what's wrong with these cheap pants that I bought that the stain is like already coming off onto my hands? I'm looking at my shirt. It's starting to get some darkness on there. Here's the thing. We have to first acknowledge that our own hands are dirty, before we start pointing our fingers at other people, before we start saying, yeah, look at, look at your sexual sin, like, let's look in the mirror first. You can't appropriately point to God's design for sexuality without taking some ownership of our own brokenness. And when we start acknowledging our own brokenness in this area, in our own fallen state, then all of a sudden we're on equal grounds and you're like, man, you're, you're, you're broken in this area. Well, guess what? So am I. Guess what? We both need Jesus. That's the healthy place as appropriate response to it. Our, our role isn't to play as, as judge because of one area of, of brokenness. That's not, that's, that's not what we're called to. We see in the text that God's already taking care of that. He even points to uh, that, that being part of something that's within the person that's, that's headed that direction. So here's the important response to remember because we can get this us versus them mentality really quick. And this is a little admonition for us as a, as a church. That man, we're, we're in the same desperate state, the same place. We both need Jesus Christ. And it's not our role to judge. It's not our, our role to condone either. That's not what we're called to. But it's to come along and realize that these are human beings that are trying to discover ro- love, even though it's in a, so often the wrong places but both in the same predicament, a desperate need of Jesus Christ. Appropriate response to that. Dishonorable passion 
It's pointed to in scriptural, Scripture. It's really clear there. You think this last section, though, is where it consistently spirals to. After that, in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, do you see that reoccurring theme there? So they didn't acknowledge God, didn't allow him to reign and rule. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manners, manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, Whew. disobedient to parents. How did that sneak in there? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, listen to this, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Wow. Talk about a convicting section there. Again, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, what does, God, what does it say that God does? Again, his release. God gave them up to what is it this time? A debased mind. A debased mind. What's a debased mind? A debased mind is a crippled and non-functioning mind. Out of sync. It's no longer working properly. And what a scary place to be. When you've spiraled to that point in God's release that your brain is no longer working properly. That's the end result of going our own way. It's a debased mind, a broken mind to left to wander wherever life will take us. I was reading this article this last week. I thought it was interesting. It was an article, maybe you'll wonder how this relates, it will in a second, about African ants. African ants. This, this specific type of black ant in Africa talks about this ant with the, with the queen ant living in the ant hill, I guess that would be, wherever they live. This is interesting, is that they discover that all of the ants within that ant hill, doesn't matter how far they had wandered off, wherever they all go, they come back to the home base, but doesn't matter how, how far they are away from the queen, soon as something starts agitating that queen ant, it causes confusion amongst all the ants all over the place. In fact, they've discovered that if they kill the queen ants, all of the rest of the ants wander aimlessly until they die. Isn't that crazy to think about? It's like, isn't that the picture of us independent of our God? We're designed to be in relationship where he's directing and guiding and, and, and sending us in, in, in connection with him. And when we wander and go our own way, when he's not part of the equation, what happens? It's not going to end well. It's, it's going to end really poorly. And that's what he's pointing to is this downward spiral. He describes in verse 29, they were filled with all manner of of unrighteousness and then he goes on to explain this all manner of unrighteousness and it's not an exhaustive list you can find other lists in the new testament of the directions man will go independent of god but if you see that list it doesn't sound like a real great spot regardless all manners of unrighteousness you read the list envy murder heartless disobedient parents you read the list would that would you want to live in that village would you want to live in that village with that description? Like, welcome to the town of unrighteousness. You know, like, this is, these are some of the things we're known for. Maliciousness, envy, like, 
Are, are you serious? And then some of us, when I first read it, I was just like, well, how do disobedient kids, like how, how do the disobedient to parents, how did that make it to the list? Anybody that spent an afternoon with a child that hasn't been disciplined will know exactly why that made the list, right? And so you see, you see why that's definitely got to be part of the brokenness of, of this whole deal. Uh, my wife and I were at our, our community pool yesterday and with uh, just a number of people from the community, and there's an uh, elderly woman there with her two grandkids. She was there and trying to give them direction. These kids were not listening to anything she was saying. And I was just, it was just like, it was painful and uncomfortable to even watch. In fact, when it was time to leave, the one girl would not come out of the pool. She used to say, nope, not coming. The grandmother had to go in the pool to drag her out with the girl hitting her. I was like, man, what in the world is the state? And that's really a picture of where does it take us? When we go, a, a, a broken mind is what God says. He says it's broke. It's not working anymore. It's fallen. It, it, it's, it's beyond, and it points to the ultimate conclusion of when it's really broken, what happens? They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They give approval to those who practice them. Not only do the people wander and do their own sin, but they start trying to give approval. Are we there as a culture yet? Are we there as a culture yet? Do we, do we see that in the world around us? Approval for, for, for actions that are clearly outside of God's design and God's boundaries. Are you serious? Are we there yet? But again, this isn't a picture of one empire or one world system. It's talking about the brokenness of man. But here's the encouraging thing. It's not all the answers are in this one text. Sometimes when you read things like this, you're just like, Scott, stop talking. Like, give some degree of hope. Like, please give some kind of light at the end of the tunnel, some kind of silver lining on this, because this seems pretty grim, right? Anybody else like that? Even here today, you're like, man, just get me to the subway, you know? Like, I just, like, I, I just need a, a break. Like, but here's the encouraging thing in this letter is that it moves to the solution to all of this in a few chapters from now. The solution is one simple word. It starts with a G, gospel. The gospel. The gospel is the truth that God didn't just release us and say, good luck with that, go ahead and run into the wall. He said, I'm going to come in and enter into their world in the middle of their rebellion, in the middle of them doing their own things, in the, in the middle of their broken mind, kind of head in their own direction, running into walls, I'm going to come in. I'm going to show the way to do it, the right way to live life. They even, they even called his followers, followers of the way. He says, I'm going to show you the way, and then I'm going to give you the opportunity to be broken out of this situation of a depraved mind. I'm going to provide the way out. That's simply through Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, what he's done on our behalf. Like the author David Platt points to a, a number of things that the gospel fixes in this scenario. The gospel reorders our worship reorders our worship, making him supreme when we actually get back to acknowledging him as God and thanking him for the things that he's done. Reorders our worship, renews our mind. Think about it when we start getting back within the, the word of God as this being our absolute truth. He's like, man, I can fix that. I can even fix your truth source. 
It's an awesome thing when God reigns in our lives, renews our minds, refreshes our desires when we're conquered by a superior desire. It's a beautiful thing. can redirect our desires, can even redeem our behavior. We could share story after story of trophies of God's grace. Somebody that was headed to complete this, completely this direction, and God takes it and redirects their stories of God's grace and provision left and right, even within this room. That's the awesome thing about the gospel message. That's the hope that we're getting to in this story. But the truth is, a lot of times, the beauty and the color and the vibrant uh, glow of God's grace is a lot brighter when there's, a back, when there's a black backdrop, right? When there's a black backdrop. And that's what we see here in the text this morning saying, man, it's not going to end well. When you head your direction, it's going to really go poorly for you. But the good news is the grace of Jesus Christ evident in what he did for us on the cross. Let me pray for us as we conclude. God, I thank you so much for the practical word that you lay out for us. You didn't leave us wondering how this all works. You didn't leave us with vague explanations. You were very specific of the downward spiral that occurs when we're outside of God's design. When we've decided to to try to make decisions on our own and wherever our, our lusts or desires that are already tainted through birth by sin. God, I thank you that you've chosen to intervene on our behalf, that you didn't leave us in that state in a downward spiral. You extended a hand of rescue. This isn't a one-time event, it's a daily event because it's so easy for us even today, to get sucked back into that vortex, getting pulled back into our own, own selfish lusts and desires. And I thank you for that continual reach to pull us back out, pull us back out. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that's our helper in all of this. All of this. We praise you here this morning. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. I'm sorry, those of you who are new here this morning. Sometimes we just talk about God's love the entire morning, but that's where it gets when we just dive into his word and how relevant it is to our lives. Amen. Pray you have a wonderful afternoon. God bless you.